Let's pray. Lord God, we look forward to the day when your son will return, when he will bring justice to the nations and righteousness with him. Lord, we gather as those who are not righteous, who are not just in ourselves. Uh, By our deeds, by our actions, we are guilty, unjust, unrighteous. And yet through the death of your son on the cross, on our behalf, you have declared us to be righteous. You have made us your sons and daughters. We gather um, in his grace, in his forgiveness, and we gather to hear and to see. I pray that you would give us ears to hear and give us eyes to see and give the increase of your word. Let it not be choked out by the thorns and cares of this world, by the stone of hard hearts, but help it to bear much fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Welcome, welcome to Martinsdale Community Church. Welcome those of you in the other rooms, and welcome those of you online. Uh, A couple announcements to make this morning. There are new directories in your seats, or if you need to get one, by the mailboxes, by the mailboxes. Pastor Daniel will be out of the office next week as his family takes some vacation. Um, and I love, I love to get to do this. We have first-time new parents. The Olsgards Jr., Simeon and Julia, are expecting in February of 21. So pray for them. <laughs> um, and... Uh, that is it for announcements. Let's return now to the worship of the Lord in song. Please be seated. You'll find the notes in the bulletin or on the link on our website. Uh, please open your Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter 5. And while you turn there, I will uh, try to give some overview of where we've come and where we are going in our final message in our series on justice, race, and the Bible. This is our fifth week, and then, God willing, we'll return to our study of Ephesians next week. And so over five weeks, we've tried to actually come at some of the issues we've been considering more sideways. Rather than weighing in on the validity or the invalidity, the justice or the injustice of claims and, and um, charges being made back and forth in our culture, Primarily, we've been trying to equip you biblically with how to think through and evaluate such things. So we've considered, okay, what is a biblical measure of evidence for someone to make a moral claim, a moral judgment? We've considered what, what, how do we under, to understand the difference between an injustice and an inequality? Are they the same thing? And, and Pastor Daniel helped make it clear, no, the existence of an inequality is not itself proof of anything. Um, more diligent inquiry would be required. And then we spend a week considering the evils and the heart behind racism, trying to come up with a biblical definition for that. Last week, we considered the evils of injustice and oppression and, and the many, many things the Bible has to say about that, as well as our responsibility to the poor, encouragements to be generous. I thought it would be good to end our series um, this morning on an entirely positive note. When we consider the salvation that God has wrought, we oftentimes praise him 
rightly, for his wisdom seen in sending a substitute. Who could have imagined that God himself would send his own son on our behalf, in our stead, to take our sins upon him on the cross? God's glory seen in a salvation that must not be worked for, but is given freely to those who believe. And we, and we, we marvel, we praise him for the grace, for the gift, for the substitute. Well, there are more things than that to praise God about in his salvation. There are more glorious realities. I want to really consider two of them this morning that intertwine. God's glorious purpose in his diverse people. God's glorious purpose in his diverse people. And, and what I mean is this. We assume, living today, that of course salvation is for everyone. That was not such a clear and common assumption for the Jews of Jesus' day. And God has a purpose, not only in saving sinners, but saving a variety of sinners. An ethnic variety, a racial variety of sinners, and a socioeconomic variety of sinners. Male and female, slave and free, Jew and Greek. So we're going to look at this morning at three points. God's great goal in salvation is where we'll begin. God's great goal in salvation. What, what are some of God's purposes? His end game. What is he trying to achieve? And we'll begin... Um, I'll begin in Genesis, but if you turn to Revelation 5, it'll be the first passage that I'm going to ask you to turn to. And, and first, I want you to consider this. It has always been God's goal to redeem for himself a multi-ethnic people for his glory. One of God's aims in salvation has always been a culturally diverse people. God, as we remember, created cultural diversity at Babel when he divided the languages and scattered the peoples. They had been rebellious. They had not spread out to take dominion over the planet. Instead, they were conglomerating together and trying to make a name for themselves. And so God scattered them. But when God comes to Abraham, listen to the blessing God promised Abraham in, in, in Genesis chapter 12. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So even as God singles out one man, one family, from whom will eventually come one nation, Israel, he makes it clear, even as he's selecting and narrowing down He's doing that with intention, ultimately, to bless all. That passage gets quoted in Acts chapter 3. Peter, speaking to the Jews, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So when God announces his plan of salvation from the very beginning, lest we think, oh, he's just interested in the Jews. He's just interested in Israel. He makes it clear to Abraham, oh, no, no, no. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you and your descendants, Abraham. And through you, I'm going to bless everybody. And, and even as, in our next point, 
The new covenant is for all peoples. That's not in contrast to the old covenant as if it were not for all peoples. There is a distinction in the covenants. But God has always been attent, alert, and and attent. He has always been intending to bless and save all types of peoples. Listen to Psalm 22. Psalm 22, which is not on my sheet, but I'll just turn to. Psalm 22, believe verse 17. God's intent to redeem for himself a diverse people. Verse 27, 28. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. So there, there's the Old Testament. So the Jews of Jesus' day, who thought salvation was just for them, weren't reading their Bibles very well. Because in many passages, Psalm 22, 27, and 28, God's intent is clear. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Now, one of the distinctions between the old covenant and the new, uh, this is maybe an overly simplistic way of thinking about it, but the old covenant was a come and see covenant. A come and see. Israel's put up like a city on a hill. And so the queen of Sheba hears of Solomon's glory and his wisdom, and she comes and she says, the half of it was not told to me. And so through Israel's righteous laws, through their good conduct and character, through their glory of their God, others would be attracted and people could yoke themselves to Israel. People could become proselytes. But you sort of had to come and see. That was sort of the nature of the old covenant. Come and see, come and see. Well, the new covenant turns explicitly into a go tell. There is no geographic center for the church. Where, where do you go? Where's, where's ground zero? There, there is no centralized location. Islam has Mecca. Jews under the Old Covenant had Jerusalem, and specifically the temple itself. Location mattered. But Jesus tells the woman at the well, even though the proper answer to the question of where should we worship is not Mount Samaria, soon is coming a time, he says, when it's not going to matter. God is simply going to be worship, seeking worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth. So the new covenant is for all peoples. The new covenant is for all peoples. So now, if you turn to Revelation chapter 5, this is the text behind the song we've been singing recently, Is He Worthy? God willing, we will sing that song at the close of our service this morning. This is the text behind it, and and so I'll move somewhat quickly through it. In chapter 5, John's caught up to heaven, and a scroll is revealed to him, covered in seals. And the seals indicate who is worthy, who is authorized to open the scroll, right? Right? Um, And so he asked that. I saw a mighty angel, verse 2, proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scrolls and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And this scroll is going to be the judgments that pour out on the earth. Who is great enough, worthy enough to judge the earth? Who Who is qualified and has the right to take the title deed of earth says, mine and I will render judgment. That's the question. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open and scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. 
And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you have ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and blessing and glory. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. So we get this glorious scene where the lamb, who's also the lion, the one who has satisfied God's wrath on behalf, of our, on behalf of our sin, the one who perfectly fulfilled God's law, he has the right to take this scroll. And when they praise him, I want you to notice why he is worthy of praise. There's a number of reasons that the lamb is worthy of praise. Look at it in verse 9. They sang a new song saying... Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. Why? Well, first, and probably most obviously, because of the glory of his sacrificial death. For you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for substitutionary atonement. We sing about that regularly, don't we? And rightly so. But they don't stop there. You ransom people for God. And then... A further glory, a further worthiness of praise, that people gets elaborated. You could have just left it. You ransom people for God. Period. From every tribe and language and people and nation, you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So I want you to understand this, that the heavenly worship scene The ground for the praise that we read is both the substitutionary death of the Lamb, that he accomplished this salvation, but also the scope of the people for whom he was a sacrifice. It's not just that Christ gave his life for sinners, but he gave his life for sinners of such a variety and sort. That that is his glory. He is praised for the ethnic diversity of his people. It's right there. They're praising him. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seal. Why? You were slain by your blood. You were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. God is more glorified that he saved people from every tribe, nation, and tongue than if he just saved one nation. 
even if the numbers of those saved were the same. He is glorified in the ethnic diversity of his people. That, that's what he meant to do. He intended to save from every tribe, nation, and tongue. That's God's purpose. And so I just want you to consider that along with his purpose in being a substitute, along with his purpose in being a spotless lamb, along with his purpose of pleasing and obeying his father, there is also God's purpose in our salvation of being glorified in an ethnically diverse people. Okay? God has another great purpose as well in our salvation. If you turn out of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And that is to redeem for himself a foolish and weak people. To redeem for himself a foolish and weak people. So if our first point is, is the ethnic and racial diversity, national diversity, every sort of people, every tribe, tongue, language, nation. Here, God intends to save a foolish and weak people. That's also part of the plan. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The Corinthian church is caught up in sophistry and wise speaking and rhetoric. And Paul fears that they consequently have a misunderstanding of the power of God's word and a misunderstanding of who they are. They, they, we're going to find out in chapter 3. They're getting puffed up and conceited. They think there's something because they've stopped giving glory to God's grace and God's word and his power, and they start putting it into the wisdom of man and, and his eloquence and his speaking ability. And so Paul, in this extended section of Corinthians, is reminding them that, that he who plants and he waters is nothing. God alone makes things grow. And here, specifically, he wants to make a point to them, which I'm sure they may have chafed at. Verse 26. I'll go back to verse 25. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So, in our last point, I want you to consider that it's not accidental. It is part of God's plan that there will be representatives from every tribe, nation, tongue, and people in heaven praising the Lamb. I want you to now notice it's not accidental. It is part of the plan that the majority of God's people are made up of those who the earthlings view as weak, foolish, and despised. That's not accidental either. God, look at the intentionality. God intends to shame the wise with who? The foolish. To shame the strong with who? The weak. To shame the noble with who? The despicable. 
Not many were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose, there's intention, what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. It is part of God's plan that most of us are the nobodies and the nothings. That that's not accidental. God's plan was that he would bring more glory to himself by taking a feeble, weak, despised people and exalting them, and conquering all others through them. He's seen to be more powerful. In the same way that God is seen to be more powerful when a weak shepherd boy takes out a Philistine giant, it would not be nearly as impressive. God would not receive nearly as much glory if God instead raised up an even bigger Israeli giant. Maybe cool. I mean, it might make a good movie, but the glory is seen... And how did this weak little shepherd boy without armor take out this alpha warrior? Well, it's his God. God is glorified through our weakness, he tells Paul. My my power is perfected in weakness. And so understand that as we consider things, we as the church of all people need to be sympathetic to the poor, the weak, the despised, because Brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian, that's probably who you are. Not many wise. Not many powerful. Not many of noble birth. There's some, but not many. And that's part of the plan, too. It's part of the plan. God chose the weak and the foolish of this world. Point two, God exalts the humble and humbles the proud. The theme of the great reversal shows up in many places in Scripture. But I'll remind you of one, the Magnificat. Mary's spontaneous song of praise in Luke chapter 1 highlights God's pleasure in the great reversal, taking those who are weak and humble and lifting them up and taking those who are powerful and strong and smashing them down. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things, and holiness is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has shattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He is sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And you could read Hannah's prayer, which I think Mary is basing hers off of as well in 1 Samuel 2. And I could show you scores of passages where God brings glory to himself by taking a humble, weak person or people, exalting them up and casting down the strong and the proud. That should affect the way we view the weak. We, we should identify with them because we're primarily made up of them. So that's God's goal in salvation. To redeem for himself a multi-ethnic people. Because the new covenant is for all peoples, not just some peoples. 
because God is glorified in the ethnic diversity of his people, he also intends to redeem for himself a foolish and weak people. Specifically, God chose the weak and the foolish of this world to shame the proud because God delights in exalting the humble and he humbles the proud. So that's God's goal. How then did he accomplish this? Let's move on out of method, God's wise method. And by way of easing us back into Ephesians, turn, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. So God intends an ethnically, racially diverse people. God intends a people who are mostly made up of the nothings and the nobodies, the foolish and the weak and the poor. That's what he intends to do. How, how, did he, how did he accomplish this? Well, if you remember from a few months ago when we were looking at Ephesians 2, that's precisely the dilemma that Paul considers, and he tells us a solution. Chapter 2 is, you remember, two before and afters, one individual, one corporate. first one deals with your sin problem, your death problem, your slavery problem, how God made you alive, freed you. The second deals with your corporate problem is not being an Israelite, right? Verse 11, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Okay, so let's pause there and understand this. God had previously instituted a racial division. We, we make up our own, right? So we, we make national borders and we say... We're of this tribe, you're of that tribe. We, we make racial divisions. God made one. So there's at least one real, authentic racial division. God put this, what Paul will call in a minute, a wall, dividing wall. And he took the people of Israel and through their religion and through their food observances, through their cleanliness laws, through all of those things, and through circumcision, he separates them out because the key concept of holiness is separate. Now here's the argument I want to make, and I'm not the first one to make this. I... I um, would commend to you, uh, Dr. Vodi Bauckham has spoken, I think, quite eloquently on this topic and far more extensively than I will hear. You can, you can YouTube him or look him up. But here's the argument. If God is able to solve fully, completely, the real ethnic division that he instituted, how much more can that solution deal with the ones that we come up with? The lines we've drawn in some senses, arbitrarily. If there is a solution to ethnic strife and racial hostility that is real, that God made, that God instituted for a time, if if there is a solution for that in the gospel, how much more for our divisions? That's the argument. So, there really was. The Gentiles were, look look at the list, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Okay? They, they really were disadvantaged. Israel really had privilege, to use some modern categories. Think of Israeli privilege. They weren't separated from Christ. They weren't alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They weren't strangers to the covenants of promise. They had hope. They did have God in the world. And let me get this but now. What, what has God done to answer this inequality, this privilege? He sent his son. 
But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. He might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So even though God had previously instituted a racial division, he has reconciled us both to God and to each other. That's Paul's emphatic point. There's two aspects of reconciliation taking place here. A vertical aspect. Christ bears our sin. And we have peace with God. Right? But don't miss the other horizontal aspect. There was a dividing wall of hostility. Not between man and God. But between man and man. Between Jew and Gentile. Between circumcised and uncircumcised. And that wall has been torn down. Also in the cross. In Christ Jesus, you, verse 13, who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. See, here's, here's Paul's picture. We've got these divided people with a wall of hostility between them. And they are both in a hostile relationship with God because of their sin. And God, in one act, reconciles them to each other. And then, having reconciled them to each other in one body, reconciles them to God. I mean, it's simultaneous, but Paul's point is we are reconciled with God even as we are one body reconciled to each other. Look at that. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. You don't have to be circumcised to be part of the covenant. You don't have to keep the food laws. You don't have to go to Israel. You don't have to three times go and worship at the temple. Those laws are gone, abolished, in order that he can create in himself one new man. It's not even the Gentiles can now be part of Israel. Rather, Gentiles and Israel become the church. He creates in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body. That's the picture. We are reconciled to God in this new person, the church, this new body, the church. So our reconciliation to each other racially is concurrent with, a correlative with, or even a precondition in this passage for our reconciliation to God. God reconciles us to him even as he reconciles us to each other. That, that, is, that is hugely important. Verse 16, might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. There is racial reconciliation in the cross just as there is reconciliation with God. And if the cross can make peace where God instituted a real division, where there was real hostility, then it ought to be able to make peace at every lesser level as well. And that's the reality we see in the church. So how is God going to make this people, this diverse people? Aren't they just going to fight and quarrel and beat each other's throats? No, No, he will achieve his multi-ethnic, multinational people 
to a cross that makes them newly one. He has reconciled us both to God and to each other. That's how he achieved his first goal of a multi-ethnic people. Whatever you were before, you're now a Christian. You're now something new. And so Jesus and his disciples could have a zealot who is basically a terrorist trying to overthrow Rome covertly, and and Uncle Tom, a a a tax collector who bought a tax franchise to take advantage of his own people. He was basically gathering money for Rome against his countrymen. Jesus has them and his disciples working together. The picture of that reconciliation. Okay, next point. Turn, Turn to Luke 4. What about his intentionality to collect a poor, weak, foolish people? If you remember in Luke 4, this is Jesus' first active ministry after he is baptized in Luke's gospel. He's baptized, he's driven out to the wilderness, he resists temptation, and then he returns in the power of the Spirit. And he goes to his hometown. And here he plainly identifies himself to his hometown. I want you to notice how he identifies himself. Verse 16, he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me. Now, there's the messianic connection. Because remember, Messiah and Christ are just Hebrew and Greek for anointed one. So when he says, the Lord has anointed me, there's your Christological messianic connection. He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Who is this Messiah, this Christ, sent to minister to? The poor, the captive, the blind, and the oppressed. Not the rich and the powerful. And when his countrymen, his hometown, understand he's telling them that's who they are, they try to kill him. Because they don't view themselves as the poor, the captive, the blind, and the oppressed. And throughout Luke's gospel, we see that only those who will recognize and confess, I am the poor, I am a captive, I'm a slave to sin, I am blind, I am oppressed. Only those who will recognize their poverty, recognize their weakness, recognize their inability, come to Christ. Turn to, turn to chapter 14 of Luke. And the ones who think they are strong and healthy, the most religious people of Jesus' day, by and large, reject him and perish. This is how God gathers a foolish, weak people. He comes to proclaim good news to them. Your point, only those who recognize their poverty will be saved. Luke 14. I could do this from many places in Luke, but 14 is as good as any. He's at a dinner party. There's Pharisee. And he tells them a parable. He said to a man who had invited him, When you give a dinner banquet, do not invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, or rich neighbors. I'm in verse 12. 
lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And he said this in part because the people who had gathered were concerned with how great and powerful they were. What were they doing? They were trying to sit at his high up on the table as they could. They didn't want to lose any prestige they could get, but they had to be careful because if they did their math wrong of honor, they might be shamed when someone greater than them took their seat. So these people are very concerned with how important and great they are. They're not viewing themselves as the poor, the weak, the captives. So Jesus says this to them. When one of them reclined at table, verse 15, with him, heard these things, he said, blessed is everyone who will eat in the kingdom of God. Which is, I think, to say something, well, maybe that's so, but really, we're all going to the kingdom, so it doesn't matter. And Jesus basically says, I wouldn't be so sure. He said to him, a man once had a great banquet and invited many, and at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all, like, began to make excuses. The first to him, I have bought a field and must go and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen. I go to examine them. Please have me be excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. And the point being, these people don't recognize the honor being given to them. They don't recognize their undeserving nature in this invitation. And so in their pride and in their concern for their own affairs, they neglect the invitation. Who does come? Then the master of the house began, became angry and said to the servant, Go quickly to the streets and the lanes in the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. What's Jesus saying? You guys are too important, too busy to be bothered with God's invitation to salvation. Who is going to come? Who's going to receive this invitation? It's going to be the poor people you look down on. And in that context, Jesus then gives his strongest call to discipleship. Not only those who recognize their poverty will only be saved, but only those who in light of that renounce themselves will be saved. You've got to, to be saved, to be a Christian, you've got to recognize there's nothing worthwhile in you. There's nothing worth holding on to. Nothing worth taking with you in your knapsack. God wants to crucify all of you with Christ on the cross, and you say, amen, have at it. Because he's promised to make you anew. And so Jesus says plainly, Verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. This ties back to the parable. I just got married, so I can't come. Okay. Then you perish. Whoever does not hear, bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Pick it up and die. And then at the end of the passage, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now look at chapter 15. If the Pharisees don't receive this, who does? Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. So get the flow of this. Take the chapter division out and get the flow. He tells the parable of the banquet. 
The important people, the busy people, they don't heed the call. The poor, the lame, the blind do. Jesus then makes it clear we're not talking about necessarily fiscal poverty. We're talking about spiritual poverty. Repent. Humble yourself. Deny yourself. Cast your allegiance on God. Renounce what you have. And come to the feast. Now tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. It's the poor and the despised, by and large, in loose gospel here, who receive this call. So God intends to shame people like the Pharisees, religious, conservative, nationalistic, make Israel great again people. He's going to shame them and cast them down by prostitutes and tax collectors. And he's glorified in that. And they hate it. They hate it. They grumble. And that then leads into the parable of the lost coin and the lost sheep and finally culminates with the parable of the lost son. Where he makes it clear that the self-righteous religious Pharisees are likened to the older brother, angry at the grace given to the wastrel, the prodigal son. Be very concerned if, if you think of yourself as good and upright. If you have a harder time relating to the prodigal, it might be because you may be actually more related to the older brother. The prodigal is a picture of all of us. We're all that filthy, that undeserving, that poor, that foolish, that shameful. And God's grace is seen in how he welcomes us with open arms. Only those who renounce themselves will be saved. Okay, with the time we have left, I want to suggest to you Seven responses, our right response to redemption. Our right response to redemption. Seven practical so much from this point. We've looked at what God intends to do. He intends to have a racially, nationally, linguistically diverse people. And he intends to have them primarily made up with, not many exceptions, poor, foolish people, at least as the world views them. How did he do that? He did that by reconciling the races and the peoples in Christ to each other and to God. And he did that by coming and preaching and calling people to recognize their poverty, their brokenness, their bankruptcy. And in that way, those who are weak and will confess and recognize their weakness come. At our last communion service, Pastor Daniel read that same concept in John 9, starting into chapter 10, where they, the Pharisees understand what he's saying. Are we also blind? And he says, if you were blind, you'd have no guilt. But because you say, we see, your guilt remains. They won't recognize their poverty. They won't recognize their blindness. They won't recognize their weakness. And so their guilt remains. So seven right responses to this. So what? First, rejoice as you see the gospel cross racial lines. Rejoice as you see the gospel cross racial lines. Lines. If God's purpose is to glorify himself through the salvation, not just of sinners, but a variety and a wide array of sinners, then your excitement and your joy ought to be found in the things that bring God joy. And as the lamb receives the reward for his death, you should likewise rejoice as you see the gospel spreading further and further out. 
Paul says this in Colossians chapter 1. We are always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love that you have for all the saints because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Paul's excited that the gospel is bearing fruit in the whole world. So we can rejoice when people in our neighborhood, when people in our community come to Christ. Amen. But there's something extra special about a new unreached people, a new nation, a new place where Christ has not been named, where now people are praising his name, bowing their knee to him. Because that is God's intent. And as we see it, we ought to be saying, yes, yes, yes. Worthy is the Lamb. Not just because he saved me, but he's redeemed for himself a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. We ought to join in that chorus from Revelation chapter 5 in our excited praise. So rejoice as you see the gospel cross racial, national, ethnic lines. Also, evangelize outside of your comfort zone. Evangelize outside of your comfort zone. Now, evangelize in your comfort zone as well but evangelize outside of it. The apostle Paul earnestly desired to preach Christ where he had not been named. Isn't it interesting that the apostle for the Gentiles was a Pharisee and a Jew? Just because you don't look like or have the same background as somebody else does not for a second mean you're not fully equipped to preach the gospel to them. Don't make the mistake the Corinthians made. It's, they thought it was the sophistry. They thought it was their, their method. And we could be tempted to think it's my commonality. Men like to hear the gospel from men. Women from, you could go along that lines. And we do the same thing in the church. You know, if we're to minister to young people, we need a young minister. Uh-uh. One man waters, one man plants, God makes it grow. The same God who made his word grow in your heart can just as easily make the gospel grow in the heart of someone very different from you. So if you're excited about what God's excited about, if you're passionate about what he's passionate about, consider witnessing outside of your comfort zone. Consider that. Point C, ignore divisions in Christian fellowship. Ignore divisions in Christian fellowship. And, and basically all of these points are flowing out of, if this is what God wants to do, if this is God's goal, if this is his purpose, shouldn't we... Get in line, work with that, not against that. Should we not help that along? Should we not be excited to play some part in that? And rejoice as we see it happen more and more. So if God's intent on bringing glory to himself from every people, when we see that happening, we're cheering, and where we can play a part, we eagerly jump in. So ignore divisions in Christian fellowship. This is one of the earliest problems that face the church. The Jews had for so long separated themselves from Gentiles that they apparently had to be told again and again, no, no, seriously, the wall's down. And so even though Peter, in Acts chapter 10, had a vision, and he went to Cornelius, and he, the first Gentile converts received the Spirit in his presence, they come back to Jerusalem and tell them, Paul tells us of Peter's hypocrisy and his fear of man. Galatians chapter 2, 11 to 14. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. 
For before certain men from James, he had came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. I want you to pause for a moment. How big of a deal is it who you eat with and who you won't eat with? I mean, you might be tempted to think this is a small issue. I mean, it's not good. It's not right. But it's not that big of a deal. All we're talking about is Peter's freedom, his willingness to fellowship with, hang out with, be seen with, eat with Gentiles. Or not. Isn't that a conscience issue? What Paul says, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? See, what Paul saw, this is out of step with the gospel. Paul understands not only is God reconciling individual people to him in Christ on the cross, but he is reconciling and creating a unified and reconciled people. When we act like that people is divided, we work against God's purpose in the gospel. I understand. So God's saying, I'm I'm up to do at least two things. He's probably doing 2,000 things. But I am redeeming individual sinners one by one as they come to faith in Christ. And I am uniting a diverse people together in one. And we say, well, we want the first bit of that, but not so much the second. Now, we're probably not going to divide as Paul did, but I, I think trends like churches that have a contemporary service and a traditional service, they're moving in the wrong direction. You're going to end up with young church and old church. You are. You're not going to have a unified people. I, I went at a class that required me to go to a, a church service radically dissimilar to my own when I was in seminary. And so I chose to go to Saddleback, Rick Warren's church. And, man, it was, it was amazing. It was well done. I mean, they, they were by the Disney area, so I think some of the same people did the lawn care and the... I mean, it was professional. And what they had were satellite locations on campus where you could go and worship whoever you wanted. So there's sort of black gospel tent, and there was a coffee bar, and there was a rock concert, and there was traditional. And, and I couldn't help but be a little dismayed thinking, I think this is working against a unified people. Rather, this is consumerism. Customer gets it their own way. You're always right, and you sort of come and take what you want. God intends to meld us together. This glory is not seen in our dividing. Certainly, pragmatically, that's easier, right? It'd be a lot easier if we could just take people together who all want the same thing, with the same needs. We'll have singles church, we'll have young married church, we'll have older persons church, we'll have white American church, we'll have middle class church. We could do that, and in one sense, it would be easier, and it would be horrifically awful. Because it would be working against God's purpose. Be working against God's purpose. We've got to get and see what's God trying to do, and then we've got to get on board with that. This is, people quote this out of context. This is the context in which Paul says in Galatians 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek. We don't want Jewish church and Greek church. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. We don't have master's church and slave church. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. So ignore divisions. Ignore divisions. 
where you're dealing with brothers and sisters in Christ, gladly fellowship. Extend fellowship to them. Eat with them. Invite them to your house. Cross those lines. Don't be afraid of crossing those lines. Don't be afraid of what your neighbors or friends might think. Do not call unclean what God has called clean. Ignore divisions in Christian fellowship. Point D. Let's take it a step further. Turn to 1 Corinthians 12. Celebrate the body's diversity as its strength. This is taking it a step further. Not only are we not to divide along racial, national lines, socioeconomic lines, we're to understand that the diversity, the racial diversity, the socioeconomic diversity of the church is its strength, not weakness. 1 Corinthians 12. First, he has a word about our unity. Then he's going to talk about diversity. So the word on unity, 12.2. For just as the body is one and as many members, he's talking about unity and diversity, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit you are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all made to drink of one spirit. So there's one sense in which we're nationally diverse, Jew or Greek, socioeconomically diverse, slave and free, yet we all, by one spirit, were baptized into one body and all made to drink of one spirit. But... Within that body, there is now this diversity, but it's not diversity along national lines. It's diversity along giftedness. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. So there's two dangers here that he's trying to address. One, you may look at a church you're part of and say, I don't see many people like me. Whatever like me means. I'm single, I don't see many people who are single. I'm young, I don't see many people who are young. I have this skin pigmentation color, I don't see many people with that. I make this type of money, I'm, I'm in this socioeconomic status. I don't see many people like, however you want to make your divisions. I don't see many brown-haired people, whatever. Whatever your divisions might be. The temptation is to think, I don't see many people like me, I don't belong here. I'm not a part of this body. I should go find a body where people are like me. And you get the pragmatic rationale behind that, don't you? It's easier, way easier. I just have, I don't want to deal with you and your problems that I don't care about, that I'm not involved with. I want to deal with me and my problems, and maybe people with problems similar to mine, interests similar to mine. And the temptation is for the hand to say, I don't belong here, because I only see one other person like me. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body, now here's the point. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? A body that just has a lot of eyes might see really well. It's going to smell terribly. A body that's all hands but no feet. and you get The, the body's strength comes from its diversity. The body is more fully furnished and equipped because it has hands and feet and noses and eyes. And then he takes that logic and he flips around. There's also another possibility. Is the one possibility is the person enters in, they don't see many people like them, 
and they conclude, I don't belong here. I should go find a church of people like me. And Paul says, that's wrong. And he makes it clear, verse 18, but as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. So who's behind the diversity? God is behind the diversity. This is another reason why we should get on board with and lean into and not against God's purpose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. And then he flips the other danger, that the majority might say to the one, you don't belong here, you're not like us. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. So in the first picture in this metaphor, it's the individual saying, I don't think I belong here. Now it's the majority, it's the, it's the body saying, we don't need you, we don't want you. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head of the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that, now get this, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are what? Indispensable. Which is to say the parts, if anything, the parts of the body we most desperately need are going to be the ones we value the least. We will be tempted to value the least those parts of the body we most desperately need. The parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body. Who's behind the diversity? God is. The body is made more whole, more strong with that diversity. Giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. Now look at his purpose. That there may be no division in the body. But the members may have the same care for one another. Now that goes against consumerism. That goes against pragmatism. That goes against utilitarianism. Thankfully, it's true and it's biblical. But we've got to check our thinking that thinks, wouldn't it just be easier if these unpresentable parts just went to unpresentable church? No, they're indispensable. God composed the body. I could talk to a whole sermon on this. Okay, point E. Guard yourself against the sin of partiality. Guard yourself against the sin of partiality. We are warned explicitly of socioeconomic preference in the church. James is, is clear. Let's read it to you. James 2, 1, 9. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit in a good place, while you say to the poor man, stand over there or sit at my own feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbors yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin 
and are convinced by the law, convicted by the law as transgressors. And there's a temptation for us to care more about the opinions, to give more honor, more deference to someone with standing in the community, to someone who has wealth, than someone who is poor, despised. I have not seen, I think I could say none, I have never seen a church whose elder board had elders who were from the lower classes, economically speaking. Maybe I'm wrong, but there's something funny there, at the very least, something worth looking into. Um, I would expect to see, um, because God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith, I'd expect to see evidences of that in leadership in churches. We've got to be on guard against the danger of caring only what the people with, with rank with the people with clout, the people with dignity and honor and wealth think, and, and, and make way for their opinions in the church, make way for their leadership in the church, and ignore and dishonor the poorer brother. That's a whole other message there we could do. Point F, bear with the failings of the weak. Again, the logic's really simple. God has largely, with some notable exceptions, chosen the weak, the poor, the nothing. So how should we treat the weak in our body? Bear with them. We should help them. We should serve them. Romans 15, 1 to 7. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scripture may have hope. The God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. We, we, we serve each other. We prefer each other. We help the weak. Um, there's a lot I could say here, but I would just commend to you that don't be American in that sense. Don't think about your rights. Think about how you can serve others, prefer others, help others, even as we gather so that we could be harmoniously together as one. And finally, if you turn to Isaiah 42, we are still going to sing our closing song. We have to. Praise the king who brings justice to the nations. Praise the king who brings justice to the nations. If you remember, Jesus identified himself in his hometown by citing this passage. If you look at Isaiah 42, he cites this. Um, Verse 7. Well, back to verse 6. I am the Lord who calls you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes of the blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I will give to no other. So that's, that's who Jesus said he is. But he's coming back. He will return. But I want you to look at some further description of this servant of the Lord. Isaiah 42, verse 1. We'll, we'll read this and we'll be... Done. And this, the point is this. We ought to yearn for it. We ought to hunger for justice and righteousness. We ought to cry out for it. We ought to speak out for it. We ought to take up the cause of the oppressed, the weak, the orphan. 
We ought to endeavor that justice be done in society. That's all good. But it will never be done perfectly and rightly and finally until Christ returns. So don't, don't put your hope ultimately in some social change or transformation. Do what you can to, to do justly and see that justice is done here on earth. But ultimately, behold my servant whom I uphold my chosen and whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the peoples, a light for the nations, to open the eyes of the blind, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved idols. Let's praise the coming king who will finally and perfectly bring forth justice. Please stand.
Leave in the knowledge and confidence that he is worthy. He will return. He will set all things right. Our final portion of our service is the giving as you leave. I know I've gone late. We'll try to rein this back in when we get back to Ephesians. If you could make your way to the ABS, we'll try to start in the next five minutes. And the ABS will probably likewise run equally late. Um, Lord bless you. Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. You are dismissed.